Hey everyone, and welcome to the Training Ground Podcast with your host, Kevin Barry. In this episode, Kevin is speaking with Tyler Miller. Tyler is a physical therapist assistant and strength and conditioning online coach. Tyler's unique background as a dual role coach helps him to bridge the gap between rehab and return to play to maximize athletes' on-field performance. So today they'll be discussing all things ACL, including risk factors, programs and plans to reduce likelihood of ACL tears, return to sports tests for ACL rehabilitation, and his rehab and training philosophy for return to play from ACL surgery. Tyler, I appreciate you coming on Train Ground Podcast. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, you're the first, uh, second physical therapist um, that's kind of working in that field. Um, but can you tell me about your own soccer background and how you became interested in working with soccer athletes? Yeah, so um, I played soccer from the time I was five um, all the way through my first two years of college. Um, so I was primarily a goalkeeper by trade, spent a couple years in high school playing, playing some midfield, um, went and played at a small D3 school for a year and then kind of uh, switched majors um, and wound up at a small community college playing, playing a year there um, while I kind of refocused on what I was doing in school. Um, and that's where I transitioned to uh school to be a physical therapist assistant, um, which I currently kind of work as now, as well as a strength conditioning coach um, in a in a sports medicine clinic for a children's hospital. Awesome. Can you talk about kind of that dual role as such? Um, it does seem like more people and even job postings online are starting to say, you know, physical therapist uh, requirement and then CSCS preferred or something like that. Can you talk about um, just off camera, we spoke about the value of potentially having both or having a foot in both sides. Yeah, so I would say especially in sports medicine, it's definitely kind of a um, a niche within the PT world where you really do need to, to bridge the gap from rehab to performance. So just simple like ankle weights or two-pound dumbbells isn't going to cut it like really in that kind of um, – uh, especially for post-op patients, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit, it looks like uh, there's a large, large phase uh, where you are doing periodized, tra periodized training um, and then looking at sports-specific energy systems and tasks and, and needing to know how to program and periodize all that stuff um, to make sure a player has the best possible rehab to hopefully prevent a re-injury when they do go back to sport. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I said, like you said, we're going to get into that a little bit more, uh, but it does seem that there's a big kind of gap as such from getting the average person back to, you know, what they would call activities of daily living versus being 100% in their sport, right? Yeah, it's a totally different ball game, totally different ball game, being able to um, take a, you know, healthy adult who doesn't doesn't really want to be um, playing a sport, but does want to be able to pick up their their grandkid or just walk upstairs to do laundry or maybe do some light exercise on their own. Um, that is uh, a, a pretty easy task compared to getting an athlete back to sport. 
Can you discuss uh, what a physical therapist assistant is? Um, it seems somewhat of a unique role. Um, I'm from Ireland myself, and we don't typically hear about assistance too much. So um, what are some of your job responsibilities and what does your day-to-day um, -day routine look like? Yeah, so physical therapist assistant it is a little bit of a unique role. And typically, you know, uh, all the podcasts and media is on the physical therapist. Um, but a physical therapist assistant role is carrying out the plan uh, of a physical therapist. So a physical therapist is going to go in and, and do the evaluation and and make the diagnosis or utilize the doctor's diagnosis to then do a formal eval, make sure there's um, nothing that maybe was missed, um, see what the deficiencies in a patient are. And then a physical therapist assistant kind of carries out the PT's plan of care, um, but where you can really make yourself a valuable physical therapist assistant is being able to take um, the physical therapist evaluation and assessment of a patient um, and help write the program based around the plan of care um, and really know exercise technique as well as exercise prescription um, to help make the best kind of exercise plan for the patient that you're working with. Um, but to, to easily define it is the physical therapist assistant um, does treatments just like a physical therapist, but they do not evaluate patients mm -hmm. um, and they carry out the plan of care that a physical therapist would set. Awesome. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Um, good stuff. We were talking off camera a little bit about some injuries and what you can do about them. And one of the topics that came up was ACL injuries. Um, before we do get into that, can you discuss a little bit about the current program that you're running through CHKD? Um, as the soccer program coordinator? Yeah, so as soccer program coordinator, um, I do get to see a lot of soccer patients and really that just kind of, um, it, it's a nice little title to, to say um, that I do some outreach with some, with some soccer teams around the area and help link them up with CHKD for anything they might need. Um, but one of the biggest injuries in soccer, in fact, soccer is the leading sport in ACL injuries. Um, so to be more valuable to soccer players, I've really tried to hone in my skills when working with ACLs um, and utilize kind of my strength conditioning background to help uh, rehab these ACLs. Um, so we've kind of developed a, a, a nice little program. Um, me, myself, is on the ACL team and, and have helped with this a little bit, but there's a lot of other great people um, in my team that have helped kind of develop our, our protocol and plan when working with an ACL patient um, to get them back to sport. And then kind of in the, in the last little, we'll call maybe 10% of rehab where it's getting very sport specific, I can jump in and, and kind of use my soccer background as well as strength conditioning background um, to really test the players' uh, sport specific agility um, and sport specific conditioning and, and do some drills, just getting the ball at their feet, making sure they're comfortable with it uh, to make sure they're ready to go to get back to sport. Awesome. Yeah. So. Um, it's not just a case of um, your evaluations at like a single joint or, you know, you're on a table um, you're trying to get them back where they're feeling comfortable um, on the field. Yes. 100%. Yeah. We take in, in the whole, whole player, not just the injured joint. Um, so it's a lot more than just uh, 
knee exercises. <laughs> love it. Love it. Uh, what are some of the risk factors for ACL injuries themselves? I've played college myself and I've seen a couple of injuries just as a soccer referee and it's an awful experience for a lot of younger kids, but are there any known risk factors for it? So the, the risk factors that we can control is what I'll talk about because there are some risk factors we know that are there um, but are more either or genetic or, or just kind of how someone's anatomically made up. Um, but unfortunately, that's kind of just, you know, what you're born with and mm. given. Um, so we won't go over those. But the ones that maybe we, we can change, um, risk factors being any kind of like decreased lower extremity strength that cause uh, deficiencies in movement, um, whether it be weak quads, weak hamstrings, um, weak hip muscles to help stabilize the knee during cutting and stuff like that. Um, and then some of the other big risk factors, and this is how the injury is going to occur, um, are any kind of very hard rotational movement um, or what we call knee valgus where the knee dives in, especially when the foot's planted. Um, and even more so when you're running or planting and your knee is bent less than 30 degrees, above that 30 degrees of knee flexion with that rotational or valgus moment is typically when these injuries are going to occur. Um, and then other small risk factors being um, shoe type um, and cleat type, which I can't speak to a whole bunch, but I know that sometimes cleat type can make a difference, but playing surface more so than cleat type turf, um, playing on turf increases your risk of an ACL injury as well as um, uh, position. So defenders uh, have a higher risk of, of ACL injury compared to other field players and we can't answer to exactly why that is with science, but our, our best guesses are the fact that a defender more so than any other player on the field is reacting to somebody else versus making a reaction to try and beat the defender. So they have more unpredicted movement that they have to make, which is probably increasing the risk for injury. Typically being a defender is a little bit more physical too. Um, so I would say those are the biggest risk factors we're looking at from a soccer specific standpoint. Yeah. That last one is a really interesting theory about proprioception and just kind of being aware of, of where your body is in, in time and space. Um, and that can be something that's difficult yeah. to train for a lot of kids, right? Yeah. Well, so we know that reactionary movements um, are very different from, from planned movements um, and, and very, very much changes even our whole kind of neuromuscular response when we have to quickly react versus having something pre-planned in our head and kind of prepping our body to do the thing that we know we're going to do versus reacting to a stimulus. Um, and, and that's actually part of our rehab in the end range of stuff. We, we have different agility and running progressions for kids um, and we don't move uh, two reactionary agility drills until they show really good proficiency with what we call closed agility tasks, which is planned movements that they, a kid knows exactly where they're going to cut and what exactly the task is before they start the drill. Um, and then there's a host of stuff obviously before that, that we look at before we do any type of agility, but knowing that those are different, um, 
it even goes into our rehab where they, they don't do these reactionary kind of sports specific agility drills until they're proficient with tasks where they know exactly where they're going to cut, how sharp they're going to cut, how fast they're going to cut and how far they're going to go. Awesome. That's a great insight. Thank you. Do you see anything about the time of year potentially for risk factor and ACL tears? I know um, just from following NFL, it's always a consideration in off season or the training camps and, even following MLS, the first game of the season last year, the MVP, Joseph Martinez, with Atlanta tore his ACL in the first game. Is there, is that a coincidence, or how do you see that playing out? No, so as players are kind of getting used to the physical contact of their game year after year and prepping and going through uh, preseason conditioning and just getting their bodies used to that um, competitive load again, um, there does seem to be a higher risk in the preseason of any sport, right? As soon as kind of uh, some kind of competitive games take off, um, even even with that being training camp. So not so much uh, preseason when we think about just hitting the weight room and and you know working on conditioning, but when that when true training camp starts and the competition becomes real, whether it be competition within your own team to make the team or the games start that's typically for about four to five weeks we see injuries kind of spike and then I would say um, probably near the end of seasons as well as the the competitive load of a season starts to take its toll um, that's another risk factor we didn't talk about even is just uh, especially when you look at soccer and the fatigue level of a single game um, when you look at typically where ACL injuries happen a lot of times it's in the second half as uh, fatigue starts to set in and there might be some biomechanical breakdown because of fatigue um, so a lot of the ACL tears we see in soccer are second half injuries um, due to that fatigue so you can only imagine then the cumulative effect over a whole season when um, you know the reporters or commentators will say, yeah, the team's, you know, mostly healthy, but at this point in the season, who's really fully healthy. Mm -hmm. um, so late in the season, I think those can start to, to come back and attack us a little yeah. bit more too. I think most, most championships are won as well by player availability. So uh, you got to keep yeah. them on the field to win games. Yes, exactly. Um, start paying that strength conditioning staff, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Keep You're those not players on the field. They're, <laughs> they're more important than we want to give them credit for. <laughs> um, now, we have discussed some of the risk factors. What can athletes do about it? Um, you know, we're not going to go out and say that it's going to 100% eliminate the likelihood, but there are certain things where we can reduce the likelihood. Um, what are some considerations that maybe a youth athlete should have? Yeah, so um, one of the biggest things I think we can do is um, at least I don't know if you've noticed this here in the in the US, but um, soccer kind of still has this stigma where they hate strength conditioning. If, if there's not a soccer ball at their feet, then it's no good at getting better at soccer. And really, these kids do need an off season to play other sports, learn other body mechanics um do different tasks so it's not the same repetitive thing over and over and they do need to start to spend time in a weight room actually putting on um some strength and size to help reduce injury um one of the things that we know for soccer players is important is having a quadriceps to hamstring strength ratio of at least 60 percent. so having the hamstring 60 percent as strong as the quads um at least um can reduce some some injury risk for ACLs. Um, 
lateral hip strength is important once again. So glute meat, all that stuff to um, improve the dynamic hip stability when running. So the knees not falling in, um, especially like young, young athletes, the 10 to 15 range where they're kind of hitting the odd growth spurts and, and neuromuscular control can be funky, really focusing on that um, for all the strength conditioning coaches out there or, or regular coaches. Um, when you're taking them through their warm up or anything like that, make sure that they're moving well, not just doing it to do it, but showing good movement mechanics with all that stuff. Um, that can be huge. And then utilizing certain things that are just out there already for the soccer community. FIFA's put a ton of money and research into the uh, FIFA 11 plus warm up protocol. Um, and you don't even have to do it every day. It shows doing it three times a week can really make a huge difference um, in reducing injury risks for, for soccer players. Um, it's a, 20 minute warm up, and you can print the PDF just by Google searching it. I, I think that's one of the best resources out there. Not to say you couldn't, maybe as a strength and conditioning coach, make a better warm up uh, or utilize kind of the little parts of the FIFA 11 plus that they throw in there and make your own. I think you could, but it's an easy free download that you can use. Um, and, and really, the key is the fact that they're hitting strength, neuromuscular control, uh, balance, and then doing sport-specific tasks like jumping um, and cutting tasks to get the player prepped and ready, um, and with an emphasis on good mechanics through all of those different little tiers. Mm -hmm. With the FIFA 11 warm-up, that has been validated in the research to show that it is effective too. It's not just a FIFA putting out a warm-up that you should follow just because, right? No, they've put the money and time into the research mm -hmm. as well. And um, I mean, there's there's a lot of research, a whole lot of research yeah. on it to this point. Um, so yeah, uh, go, go print it, download mm -hmm. it. Um, easy resource to use. Yeah. You mentioned a weight room could be a... Um, a positive influence for a lot of younger kids um but some parents seem to have a misconception that you know the kids should wait till they're 16 or even 18 to do some um strength training movements what's your own thoughts on that yeah so there's really no i wish i could tell a nice fun story about where that myth got generated and how it started but there's really there's there's really no research to say that youth weight training um stunts growth or or has any negative impact on a child's development both um, just physically or athletically uh, it can only help the I think where maybe the problem can happen is if we're maybe just sending kids to the weight room on their own with no guidance for the first time and they're using poor lifting mechanics or just kind of um getting competitive in the weight room too fast and, oh, I can lift more than you, but not focusing on good movement quality and skills. Uh, but this is where as, as uh, strength conditioning coaches, uh, PTs, um, or just the regular soccer coaches um, can have a big influence in, in learning how to move properly and then teaching that to these kids and we don't need a ton of load at first. We need to focus on movement quality. And then as movement quality is there, then we can add resistance. Um, but all those things will be great for athletic development as well, um, especially in the sport of soccer. So, yeah, there's really no harm in doing that unless they're using poor mechanics and they're going into the weight room without guidance uh, mm -hmm. for the very first time. That makes sense. 
when uh, if you have a youth athlete or anybody um, that's going to have ACL surgery, um, typically you'll hear the recommendation that they should engage in some sort of strength training prior to surgery. Um, what's the rationale behind that? And is it beneficial? Uh, yeah, 100%. Prehab is huge um, and can and can make a big difference coming out post-surgery. Now, I think people get a, a little uh, beat up on it um, just because they're like, well, why do I want to go train so hard just to still need surgery anyways and know I'm going to be weaker? But um, when we kind of look at this or think of it from a perspective of how far we have to climb, we know after surgery, uh, a person's performance is going to drop a certain percent and their strength is going to drop um, and their ability to do the things they normally do are going to drop. But if we can take their baseline uh, before they even have the surgery and raise the baseline higher than the they drop less below their baseline after that surgery so there's not as much catch-up that we have to play um, when they have good range of motion and improved strength before they even go in to get that surgery so it's huge it's huge coming out on the other their end. Yes. Are you going to still be weaker than you were 100% after surgery? But if we can kind of counteract that before you go in and get you stronger before you even go in, then there's less of a hill to climb afterwards. I love that perspective because it can be difficult to try and get that message across, but you've explained it perfectly there. Um, a lot of times you'll see kids are, they're a little bit down or they're depressed or, you know, they don't see the value in some of the things you're just explaining there. And let's even take it from that perspective, rather than having a kid sitting around kind of beating themselves up and depressed for uh, however long they have to wait and, until they can go into the OR and get that surgery done. Um, as strength conditioning professionals, we know the mental benefits of exercise. So if we have a way to, to do that prehab and get them into a gym and they can still feel a little bit like an athlete, mm -hmm. probably much better for their mental health as well. Absolutely. You can keep them involved in that team set and for a lot of um, activities off the field, for sure. 100%. Now, let's kind of use a case example here. If we do have, let's say, a 16-year-old female that has had ACL surgery, what are some of the stages of progression and when can you tell somebody is, is ready to move on to the next stage? So I'm kind of glad you you asked that because this is where I think um, me and my colleagues do a great job. And I, and I was lucky enough to be a part to help kind of develop um, the, the plan that we kind of use here. And we are totally goal-based. So um, we kind of throw the old notion of timelines out the window, such as like, all right, four weeks you're doing this. At 12 weeks, you're running. Well, you're not running if you haven't met other certain goals. So we start in early rehab, um, working on uh, quad activation um, and range of motion primarily, and then start to build some, some base level strength. And then once we kind of have joint effusion, range of motion, and quad activation and quad control, under control, we move to a strength phase. Um, strength phase is typically the longest phase in rehab because I think um, as PTs or people in the, the rehab realm, um, 
PTAs, um, any clinicians like that, we're learning more and more that there's kind of more of a, a neural component to these ACL injuries than, than we think. Um, so working on that good uh, motor control and quadricep activation is key at first. So then when we do go into true strength phase, we're getting as much of a, uh, motor unit contraction as possible. Um, anyways, went off the rails a little bit there. So then we enter our strength phase where, you know, we're blending, um, concentric, eccentric, isometric, uh, strength principles in there and it starts to get a little bit periodized where obviously we're starting with kind of a, a general hypertrophy phase, um, more reps, lower weight. Um, and then as they start to show some proficiency there, um, a lot of machines as well, that's good to start. Um, sometimes, um, you can't really like load a, a squat or deadlift or anything like that because their their surgical legs just too weak. There's going to be too many asymmetries. So a lot of single leg exercises, um, and then we start to blend in the compound movements um, and double leg exercises with still having those single leg exercises blended in there um, to work on that single leg strength. But we don't we don't neglect that healthy leg either because we know. Uh, an athlete going to post-surgery, they're not doing athletic stuff. So that, uh, that healthy leg starts to lose some strength as well. So that, that does get built into rehab as well. We're working on both the injured leg and healthy leg. Um, then we look for about 75 to 80%, uh, limb symmetry to the healthy leg for quadriceps and hamstring strength before we start doing any forms of running or jumping tasks. Okay. And typically even before jumping, um, what I will do with my patients is start what I call a deceleration phase. Um, and everybody thinks of deceleration as like stopping from a run, but we can do that kind of in a, in a single plane as well, which is how I start. Um, and my kind of definition of the deceleration phase is taking movements we've been doing and adding an element of speed to it. So instead of a slow kind of eccentric single leg squat, I might have somebody kind of raise up on both toes, do a heel raise. If you can kind of picture this in your heads, listeners, and then snap down either onto both legs or a single leg really fast and try to land in a good landing position that they would have to land in from a vertical jump or something like that. So there's very low risk and very low impact at this phase. And we're working on that good motor control under speed at this point, because that's what it takes to land from a jump or, or slow down quickly on a diamond cut is that good, quick motor control. And you'll see differences here. You'll see really good proficiency with the strength movements and then add an element of speed and deceleration to a movement. And and you'll see weight shifts off the surgical leg or just nervousness. And so I think this is a really important phase that sometimes gets overlooked. And then once they show proficiency there, that's when I move into things just like jump landing. So falling off a box, can you land symmetrically on both legs? Can you load the quads? Um, are you getting below 30 degrees of knee flexion, which we talked about most of those ACL injuries happen, happen above 30 degrees of knee flexion. After good jump mechanics happen, then we move into true plyometrics, so multiple jumps in a row, kind of utilizing the stretch shortening cycle at this point for much more ballistic moments. Um, then once that shows proficiency, then we move into true running, and I start with just linear acceleration. 
So starting at maybe just above 50% speed or just over a jog, run straight, plenty of room to slow down so they're not stopping on a dime. Mm -hmm. I build this up until they're sprinting at 100% speed. After that, then um, once they're doing that with good mechanics, then I add in the deceleratory component to the running task. So typically what I'll do is I'll have them once again build from about 60% speed. Okay, do this. And I give them about three to five steps to slow down and stop dead on a target cone. And then I'll start building the percentage of speed. And then by the time they're to 100% speed, they have about seven steps to slow down. But then we're adding in that deceleratory component of running. And you'll see little hiccups with all of all of this. Like it sounds kind of like just minute little changes, especially if you're used to working with a healthy athlete. But when somebody's rehabbing from that ACL injury, be it confidence or neuromuscular control, adding in just these tiny little things make a huge difference in what it looks like. And so I think all these phases that might seem like they should kind of all be lumped together um, are very important. And then once they show good form and technique with the linear deceleratory component at full speed, that's when I jump into closed agility tasks, which we kind of talked about. The person knows where they're going to cut, how they're going to cut. And I start with um, just light 45 degree angles there and then build the degree of the cut up to 90 degree cuts or then like your typical like 180 degree cut or like a shuttle run or something like that um, and work with them going all directions with that until they show uh, good mechanics and confidence there. This is where we can also start throwing in some acceleratory exercises from different directions, be starting, starting backwards and, and getting the hips around um, and doing a full 180 degree turn and sprinting or starting sideways and working on kind of leading with that hip coming through um, instead of that kind of like hard, like pivot into the ground. Um, and this is where we're teaching athleticism too, kind of teaching to get rid of wasted movements um, to be more powerful and explosive. Acceleration can be tricky too, um, because to get up to speed fast, we know that takes a lot of muscular force and power. Um, and typically that lags a little bit behind true muscular strength. And so we're doing some power exercises through all this at this point as well. Um, and those first three steps can kind of be the most tricky at times um, with these kids is getting up to full speed in those three steps without it looking funkier than feeling like they're getting up to full speed in those three steps. Um, and then after the closed agility looks good and acceleration looks good, um, then we move into the really true return to sport phase where we start to do some sports specific drills um, or just what we call open agility where they're cutting and reacting to things at full speed without knowing where they're gonna go. So just me yelling left, right, or uh, taking a soccer ball and as they're sprinting at me, rolling in a direction and they have to react to the ball. Um, and we start to send them back to do some light stuff at practice, non-contact at this point to get a ball at their feet a, a little. Um, at this point, we should be feeling comfortable enough with them to go do that. Again, non-contact stuff at practice. Um, and then we have uh, a very easy kind of return to kicking protocol that we follow for about 14 days, just incre increasing um, the distance between passes um, and the velocity of shots that they take, the distance of shot they take to work on that, because we know, um, 
shooting also takes a lot of muscular effort and power and especially for it takes a lot of force on the plant leg to be able to plant and stabilize the leg to drive through the ball and then the actual kicking leg um it goes into a pretty violent like hyper extension moment as you follow through open chain and strike the ball and follow through so we definitely want to make sure they look good kicking feel comfortable kicking there's no pain there um and then at that point by discharge what we're looking for is good mechanics with running jumping return to sport tasks full confidence in those and then above 90 percent limb symmetry on um, strength tests we use a biodex which is a really fancy test um, if there's any pts listening out there that don't have a biodex uh, invest in a handheld dynamometer and at least check for 90 percent strength there um, isometrically for both quads and hamstrings um, as well as 90% limb symmetry on, on four different hop tests. So we use a single hop, a triple hop, a crossover hop, and a time six meter hop. And those are all single leg jumps that we look at um, and measure in, in centimeters and make sure that the injured leg is within 90% of the uninjured leg for all those as well. Um, and that's kind of what our discharge criteria looks like. Awesome. I appreciate that insight. Love it. Um, I'm glad yeah, you sorry long, long-winded answer but it's a it's a long-winded rehab I mean these kids are, are looking at it probably nine months to a year of rehab minimum we know nine months is kind of the minimum now the six months has been kind of thrown out mm-hmm. but there's even some research showing that um, athletes really even aren't fully back to 100 percent until two years out from these things so mm-hmm. it, it is a very long grueling process um, yeah it takes a lot of mental strength as well to, to keep fighting through day to day with this thing yeah and it's an individual approach too you know i find that a lot of kids want to compare their um rehab timeline you know my teammate was doing this at six months out and i'm not you know that can be um tough for a lot of yeah. kids to take it's all very independent every every kid is different every surgery is different um so yeah definitely uh any any kids maybe out there listening that are going through any type of rehab but especially a post-op like this where there is a long rehab process uh, only take it you versus you and try to be better than the last treatment session you were in because literally all these are different um it depends on your graft type that you get. It depends on the surgeon that does the surgery. It depends on the surgeon's precautions. It depends on your PTs. It depends on you. It depends on your anatomical makeup. So it, only comparing to somebody else going through this is only going to uh, frustrate you. Only compare it to the last treatment session you had and try to be better than that last treatment session. I love that you mentioned the importance of kicking and passing. Um even taking away ACL tears, you see that a lot in preseason period where athletes, I work at a college level and you'll see athletes that, oh, I did the full summer workout and I feel fine. You know, I had no issues. I can't believe I've gotten, a, you know, a hip flexor issue or a hamstring issue because they haven't kicked the ball in, you know, 8, 10, 12 weeks. So that is an overall yeah, factor, I, mean- I think. Yeah, especially when you're looking at at shooting. I mean, it's a violent, violent action. I mean, you're trying to get as much torque through a, a one limb as possible while stabilizing your whole body's force on the other limb. So it's, uh, especially soccer players, we think of it as just a day-to-day activity that we do, um, but, but it's a violent action. And uh, I have a study somewhere, and I wish I had it with me because I don't want to quote wrong information about the 
degrees per second that a shooting limb moves for a soccer player. And it's, it's nowhere near the velocity of say, like throwing a baseball. Um, but, but look at baseball injuries. Most of them are from the repetitive motion of, of throwing a ball violently. Um, and again, the velocity from a leg and a soccer kick isn't near that. It's uh, throwing a baseball is the highest velocity motion of, of the human body. Um, but it's still a high velocity moment that we do repetitively. So it's, it's totally plausible that injuries are going to occur by continually uh, uh, kicking mm-hmm. um, with high force. Yeah. Yeah. I think the volume is going to be way higher versus, you know, that example of baseball, they do have standards out there that you should only throw this amount of time. But um, from, from my experience, uh, soccer practices can sometimes get out of hand as far as shooting goes, you know, you're doing 15, 20, 25 minutes at the end of a practice. So. Yeah. Yeah. And if that's the case, um, I've kind of been out of the coaching world a, a long time, so I'm not sure what they really look like anymore, but it, yeah, I, I definitely don't think we need 20 to 25 minutes of continuous repetitive shooting at max velocity, uh, especially for these youth players. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can't stand behind any research for that either because it's not as well researched as baseball again, because that's not where most of the soccer injuries are coming from is that repetitive motion. Um, but it, again, it's totally plausible to think that if, if we're overdoing it with the amount of uh, uh, full velocity kicks or shots that we're taking that, you know, overuse injuries could definitely occur awesome and last question which we did touch on through the fifa 11 plus uh, warm-up protocol but are there any other resources out there that you follow for soccer related strength conditioning or something where you as athlete could kind of learn more about what to do better basically um i would say as far as soccer specific um fifa 11 plus is the best thing to go to for the warm-up um but other than that, really, um, soccer is a very unique sport where we're utilizing all three energy systems a lot, or we have to be fast and powerful as well as strong, as well as very aerobically fit. And so I think for any coach or strength conditioning coach or rehab professional out there, um, really just know the fundamentals and demands of the sport. And I think some really good resources there are, uh, like the essentials of strength conditioning textbook from the NSCA is great. It'll give you a little taste of kind of all those things, what energy systems are, how they operate and the difference between strength training versus hypertrophy training versus training for power. Um, what sports specific training truly is, uh, you know, sports specificity is not just throwing a ball at somebody's feet and calling it a sports specific drill. It's a lot different than that. It's uh, challenging the body in a way similar to the demands of the sport, not actually doing the sport. Um, and just keeping up with basic research and then, and find the experts in the field with social media, um, and zoom and everything. Now it's really easy to get in contact with other really good strength conditioning coaches, soccer coaches, rehab professionals. Um, and don't hesitate to reach out to anybody in that field. Even if you are just a player and you're not working in the field, uh, don't hesitate from the one thing I've noticed from working in this field is it's a pretty humble field and people are willing to share their secrets. Most people get into it not to be the best or greatest or be seen as a guru or make a ton of money. They do it to help people 
whether it be athletes, adults, anybody, they're in it to help people. Um, so don't feel like the great strength conditioning coaches or rehab professionals or soccer coaches are out of reach. You know, if you can find them on Instagram, shoot them a message. The worst they can do is not answer or say no, but, but most likely uh, anybody I've ever reached out to has been willing to help. Awesome. Love it. Tyler, I appreciate you coming on today. Share some great perspectives and looking forward to getting this out. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. Hopefully you can do it again sometime. Absolutely.